0: I guess as a starter then and um, maybe to Jenny um, what would you say are the kind of key trends at the moment and do you think um, kind of following on from Covid what are the longer-term trends we've seen for quite a while and then are there other things that we've now started to see in post-pandemic that maybe will be kind of newer areas of growth that people might not have expected a year or two ago
1: Well, I think so. In terms of consumer demand, it's very much about the health and sustainability agenda, which you've picked up on um, during today. And I think there's sort sort of four key areas that I would say from sort of lumping the consumer trends together. So in terms of sustainable nutrition, so that's all about being good for health and good for the planet. So... Plant-based becoming more mainstream, helping to consumers to eat fruit and veg, whole grains and fibre, making it easier for them to do that. Looking at non-dairy alternatives and, and considering the dairy equivalents and the vitamins, and minerals in those. In terms of functional ingredients. Obviously, you've got your naturally functional and you've got your, you know, your added functionality coming from things like um, botanicals. I think consumers are looking for Immunity, that's been a big thing during 2020. I think it will continue on into 2021 as well. Improving people's mood, improving their energy, their digestive health and weight weight management. I would say those are key areas. I think during 2020 as well, we've seen a lot more about um, mental and emotional well-being. And I think that's something that will we'll continue into, into 2021. And also preventative nutrition. I think, again, we've seen this in 2020. Younger consumers have become more interested in the health agenda, um, particularly around the area of um, immunity, but also looking to eat healthier healthier foods. I think in the area of gut health, we're seeing more probiotics in in products you wouldn't necessarily associate um, with, with gut health, things like snacks. Um, and also not to forget that, that active aging. I think, um, you know, as consumers are, you know, wanting to remain active for longer in terms of keeping up their physical activity, increasing their protein levels, I think mobility, cognitive health, and memory is going to become quite key for the, for the older generations.
0: So those are the sort of four key areas, I would say. That's really interesting, actually, isn't it? Because a lot of the ones you've touched on there, which I guess are broadly within a a health bucket, if you like, but are actually not necessarily what we would uh, traditionally think about maybe as as food companies working on health policy, which has always, of course, been about reducing sugars, reducing salts, and so on. Um, Whereas, you know, from what you've outlined there, the consumer trends actually are much more towards um, either positive nutrition or a kind of a more... I suppose, holistic awareness of their their health. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely.
1: And I think it's going beyond that what can I take out? The kind of next step is kind of what what can I add back in?
0: Yeah, okay. No, that's really interesting. Um, And I don't know, either Carol or Mark, if there's anything you think you've seen um, or where you think drivers might come post-COVID, do you think, as Jenny's just outlined, it's very much going to be focusing in on those more um, kind of positive aspects of health? Yeah, I, go, I, I
2: agree. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think Jenny covered covered it really well there. And I think the um, way you touched on sort of the, you know, lower sugar, lower salt type products, that's almost the price of entry now. Consumers expect the product to be... Um, nutritionally balanced before you start adding those um, functional ingredients on top because you know that's part of the the basis of um, the product is is providing that um that balance and it doesn't really fit with messaging if you've got very high sugar levels or very high fat levels it's difficult to then convince the product the consumer that this is a product that's going to be beneficial to them
0: mm. And Mark, picking up specifically on something uh, Jenny mentioned there, actually, around kind of probiotics maybe becoming a bit more of a thing, and I guess, and then also gut health more generally, I think, you know, thinking about what you can say on pack and whether you can talk about probiotics or not, that's obviously been something that's rumbled around for years. How do you think that you see that kind of going forward over the next little bit of time?
3: I mean, we don't come from sort of a market analysis side. Um, although in a past life, I used to work for Reuters and Business Insights and do market reports, which are, it's an interesting area. But um, we see sort of hundreds of products every year. So we do tend to see what trends are going on within the market. And I think, um, you know, sleep is, is definitely one. Um, stress is another. Um, and and gut health. And they're probably in obviously, into the regulatory side. Um, so... We've got a few different restrictions going on, so like you said, the probiotic side, but but that's changing at the moment. So we've got five member states now that allow the use of the term probiotic, um, where obviously traditionally it's being considered as a health claim. Um, so I think most recently we had sort of Denmark add into that list. Um, we're currently in the process of, of actually trying to get a shewed advice from Trade and Standards on actually being able to use that on pack. Um, but it's been made more difficult now we don't we can't implement mutual recognition um, but there is, you know that that whole area of probiotics I think will come back um, and it'll be a key word because um, obviously a big chunk of the market got damaged from that and companies like Danone and actor to pivot to put vitamins and minerals in to make their claims um, so I do I do think that will come back and I do think there's a legal argument to say why it's not a health claim but um, but unfortunately, the commission provided a memo that said it was a benefit. Um, but it ultimately, doesn't have force of law and it needs someone to challenge that. Um, and, that and that is a big part, really, of um, where I think there's some advantages um, from a regulatory side for, for products to be developed. So probiotics is one. But on the sleep side, we've got melatonin, um, which carries approved health claims, but is considered medicinal in the UK. Um, again, I think that could be challenged on the low-dose levels. So there's no registered medicine um, for helping beneficial sleep at one milligram or below. So it could be uh, – there's a challenge there for a company that wants to invest in that. Um, and then we've got sort of on-haul claims. Um, so picking up from sort of Jenny's side where she's talking about botanicals, elderberry uh, – you know, it was the biggest seller in the US over the COVID period as a botanical, um, probably because it's got vitamin C in there, but it's also show, associated with immune function. Um, and there's some on hold claims for that, um, but it's not a simple system like we see with general health claims, a 13.1 list where you just say that's, that's the amount we need and that's the claim and we can stick that on pack. It's a bit more complex for a botanical, um, but if a company is willing to sort of invest in that process, uh, we've got a list of 2,000 claims there um, that could be used to sort of be quite innovative. Um, given we've actually, you know we've only had for the last 10 years a list of 200 and odd claims, um, unless you want to go down the 13.5 route, which is expensive and high risk. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in the regulatory framework to commercialise something, um, but it just needs companies that are willing to sort of take some risks on that side. Maybe um, that's not startups. Um, but, you know, other companies could probably go down that route and, and put in place a good defence.
0: And and Jenny, did you want to come back in on anything on probiotics? You looked slightly
1: unsure. No, <laughs> no, 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 absolutely fine. No, abs- absolutely fine. And I think the kind of next generation of probiotics as well that we're looking towards kind of the, um, you know, the paraprobiotics, the postbiotics, it, It's it's... Um, you know the use of those in innovation is going to be easier because you're not using the live cultures you're actually using micro the dead microorganisms so I think that's going to help in the future with with um with new innovation coming along but again more research needs to be done into this area
3: yeah I absolutely. think it's an opportunity for sort of the UK government now to to pivot to make a decision about how they might handle health claims you know, obviously, we've got our own sort of nutrition health claims committee now in place. They've had the first meeting about two days ago um, and looking at the first 13.5 claim on vision and um, carotenoids, I think it is. So there the is an opportunity now with that committee to try and say, why don't we go back and look at botanicals? Why don't we re-look at probiotics? Um, I don't know what's going on from the lobbying side of things, but it'd be interesting to sort of revisit those issues um, and allow industry to actually have something new, something innovative to say about products, because we really have been restricted within the European framework when it comes to novel foods, when it comes to health claims, um, and, and you know this this is an opportunity that we could take.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. As you say, that that you know it's interesting. They've had the first meeting, and I guess it's probably slightly early days to see which way. Um, we're, we're going to take it within the UK but um, it, it absolutely could be a great opportunity for companies um, so we have actually had um, a question in which sort of links I guess to the both the health side of things which we've just been talking about but also then uh, into environment obviously the other big hot topic um, which is around um, the kind of how do we weigh up the nutrient density of products against carbon footprints? And where do you think the focus will be in the future? Or how do we balance those two, two foci? Uh, I don't know who wants to take that one, Carol or Jenny, maybe? Yeah,
3: definitely not a regulatory question.
0: <laughs> Carol, thought, do you I want, me want actually...
1: to start off and I'll... <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a go. Uh, I think they're two
2: actually two very separate um, aspects to a product and they probably need to be looked at individually the you know i don't think there's a case of having to compromise on one to be able to achieve the other necessarily i think it you know it's they're both obviously can be goals but they're different companies different products will have different you know prioritize them in different ways so i don't I, I don't think there's um, necessarily an issue that, you know, if you're trying to reduce the the sugar or the the salt content, something you're necessarily compromising on the sustainability message, it may just guide the sorts of ingredients that you look at and, and screen in your product.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's kind of coming back to your particular product, your particular brand and where kind of both of those sit within your within kind of your corporate social responsibility or within your the product range that you're that you're dealing with. I think it's I think it's going to be very, very individual um at the end of the day um, depending on your product category also depending on which markets you're um targeting because obviously, Globally, um, there are very, very different regulations, and we've seen a real increase in regulatory divergence um, around the area of health and sustainability throughout the COVID period. So, um, yeah, I think it comes down to individual brands and products.
0: Mm. Uh, Yeah, and presumably a knowledge of your um, consumer, which will will help you also have an understanding of um, what's most important to them? Although obviously, as companies, you'll be looking across the piece, um, generally, but you know, particularly if it's even if it's an, a matter of which which element you want to focus your marketing on, or that you know mm-hmm. you need to have that kind of consumer knowledge, don't you? Um, so I guess maybe saying then we're thinking about that that crossover. Uh, into sustainability and health and thinking a little bit around the kind of um, plant-based foods, which I think you touched on as a a trend um, that you've seen coming through, Jenny. Um, So I guess maybe to Carol, thinking about that kind of technical functionality, what would you see as being the kind of real challenges around developing products that are kind of more plant-based? Uh, The
2: plant proteins,
0: so the
2: solubility, the taste profile um, of those proteins can bring real challenges. Um, You know, I think we touched on earlier the fact that um, if we're looking to develop products which are to replace a dairy product or a meat product in the diet, really the way the, the market is moving is for that product to be nutritionally equivalent or superior to the um, the product it's designed to replace. So that means you're trying to put the same amount of protein in and the same quality of protein. And um, that is something which is difficult because um, you may need to blend plant proteins to improve the overall quality. Um, You may be needing to look at different formats of the protein to to be able to get sufficient protein into the product. also working really hard on the taste side so looking at flavors and ways of masking any off notes that come through um, with the protein so that is that is a big challenge um, but the, you know the texture um, if you're thinking about meat products it is also something that's um, that's really difficult to to mimic you know we've got lots of burgers and sausages now but when you start to think about those sort of whole muscle type meat products that um, that you may want to replace, getting that sort of long fibrous texture or maybe replacing fish and um, getting the sort of flakiness. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to think about in the, in the plant-based area. But having said that there's also been a huge amount of innovation, you know, the, the ingredient companies are working really hard in this area to, to provide new solutions um, that could be used as part of the formulation. I
3: think the, uh, plant, the plant protein side is definitely difficult. Um, we work with a few different companies that have got a greens range. And like Carol has said there, um, the taste side is, is one of the most difficult because they're trying to be authentic in terms of they started off as a plant-based company. Um, but then if you actually want to sweeten a product with something natural, um, especially in Europe, it becomes quite difficult because you need a lot of stevia or glycosides in. And even then there's the argument, is that natural or just of natural origin? Um, if you want to use a, a, a protein sweet now, like Thermatin or something like that, then you can only use relatively small amounts depending depend on what the product category is. And so there's real challenges there with the taste profile of the product. Um, or, and then when it comes to labelling, if you've used sort of some, some clients have got 50 different botanical sources um, of plants um, to actually make up their protein range and try and actually list those ingredients, um, unless you've got like a two-kilogram bag, it's uh, it's quite difficult. Um, especially if they're US firm, and it's like you can have a proprietary blend where we just don't have that here or not legally anywhere. Um, how do you actually manage to put that in a product? So there's there's the taste challenges, and also regulatory within that category for sure. Um, and generally, we're because we, I
0: think I do. It feels like we're seeing more kind of plant-based claims all claim statements, um, does that have a basis? Is there an underpinning kind of definition of of what constitutes being plant based in the market?
3: I think it always goes back to the sort of original idea of any claim is, is it misleading? So even from sort of the old trade descriptions act through to where we are now, is it misleading? And can you provide evidence to show that it is plant based now? without a legal framework to say what plant-based means. It's what the average consumer would believe plant-based means, depending on the product's being held out for sale and all of its characteristics. So, you know, it's for the company then to consider that and ideally be provided some guidance on where that might fit. Now, it might be a case of borrowing a framework from another country um, or another state that might have something in place rather than just from the UK. So there is some options, um, but the the basis is always not to mislead the consumer. um, And that's that 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 would be our starting point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've already mentioned you see that as a trend, Jenny. Do you think that is something that will continue to kind of grow and develop?
1: The plant based trend. Plant-based, yeah,
0: I think, to, yeah, de- definitely because
1: that that kind of where it kind of where it crosses into the kind of sustainability agenda and what, what consumers are aware of are becoming more aware of the impact of the products that they can have, not only on their health, but also on the planet as well. So they're becoming more interested in or they want more transparency about how products are made, what the ingredients are in there, why products are in, why ingredients are in there as well. So really looking for sort of multifunctional ingredients that, um, that kind of are good for the planet and good for the health.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. can certainly see that uh, ongoing, as you say, it ties so neatly, I guess, into things like um, the strive towards net zero, which we're hearing so much about and obviously impacts um, a lot on food products, which is our kind of session later on with food companies, but also just um, individual dietary choices and the the impact that that can have. Um, I just remind people who are listening in that you can uh, add questions for the panel into the question box, so um, please uh, do do that. So I suppose then if we think about uh, another area I think everyone has mentioned so far on the panel is kind of more functional foods and that that is quite a um, a growing area and a growing sector and, you know, people are really looking to get more out of their food, I guess. Um, I mean, first of all, is there anything specific within the functional food areas? Do you think, Jenny, that people are really going to um, be looking at? And then I guess to Carol, is there specifics around a kind of innovation in that area that people really need to think about and consider?
1: Well, I think the sort of key areas, and I think Mark touched on a couple words, that, that consumers are kind of interested in that cognitive health, that kind of area, so improving memory, alertness, speed of thinking think we could all do with a bit of that um, i think gut health it's been on the agenda it remains on the agenda so i think all around that area um, stress particularly as well mental mental well-being i think all those particular areas and then the functional ingredients that can that are kind of associated associated with those so, for example, with cognitive health, your you know your nootropics, you know that can help with brain and mental performance and help you know reduce the decline of, for example, d- dementia sufferers. So, and I think again, botanicals is 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 like it is like a key area because of of their the health benefits. But Carol, I'll let you go into more detail. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks, Jenny. Um, yeah i i think that one of the
2: challenges really is you know what what can you say and how do you communicate the benefits um to the consumer so there are some really interesting ingredients coming along um, jenny mentioned the the postbiotics the the parabiotics i mean that consumers are already very confused about pre and probiotics and we're bringing in all these new ones and you no know, it's it's a lot for consumers to try and try and understand but then if you if you can just sort of mes- message around sort of healthy gut or um, digestive wellness or that sort of thing, then it's much more palatable for, for consumers. But then for your very dedicated, sort of health conscious consumers, they're going to want to know more details. So how do, you, how do you provide that information? And what we're seeing is that you, know, you can provide, there are some ingredients that you can use a brand name on pack. And then you can link through on your website to to help the consumers who want to really sort of understand the, the science behind those ingredients. And I, I think um, the the whole um, pandemic situation seems to have accelerated the um, the development of these ingredients because the consumer need is there. And we talked about immunity earlier. And I mean, I, I guess I've probably been more aware of looking out for ingredients which are, are sort of talking to immunity. But we know that that's something consumers are going to be thinking about, you know, probably up until beginning of last year, it was something that you only kind of considered when you felt a bit under the weather. Um, over the past 18 months, it's really been kind of hammered down on throats how important your immune system is. So it's natural that consumers are going to be looking for those ingredients. And what's going to be key is understanding what claims you can make. And, you know, at the moment, as Mark mentioned, you can go down the route of adding um, certain vitamins or minerals, and then building on top, so bringing in new botanicals some, um, and maybe ingredients that consumers naturally associate um, with, with the, um, the immune system. So things like ginger or turmeric uh, are used quite, quite widely. But then it's also important to, to understand your packaging, your shelf life, um, and be able to support those claims um, through the, the
3: shelf life of your product. Yeah, I think, the, I think the COVID side and um, from, from what Carol said and, and Jenny's from the Nootropics, um, the gamer side of things um, and, and Gen Z, so the 20, 25-year-olds um, who were looking for sort of products during the gaming side. So it's not my area, but my daughter sort of keeps me um, up to date with terms like uh, Twitch streamer, which is apparently where people watch people playing a game. Um, and some of these people have got, like, there's one recently signed up with a cosmetics brand, um, she's got 8 million people who follow her. Um, so, their use of an influencer route um, in terms of communicating the benefits of the product. So, they don't carry any claims on, on the actual products, but it's just the fact that this person's got such a big pull within that world. Um, so, these sort of non claim routes of actually carrying the benefits across in a similar manner that Red Bull now don't make any overt claims about the products from when they first started. So, you know, if you can become an expert brand um, for that specific. I'd say it's a niche, but if someone's got 8 million followers, there's quite a lot of people who are interested in, in that category. Um, so, yeah, so the nootropic side is quite interesting. And, and, again, that's been challenging when we've had actually just label products. You know, what does nootropic mean um, itself? Um, if probiotics a claim, well, what does nootropic mean? So, you know, it's... There's quite a lot to look at there and um, what products need to be in in there, like Carol had said, to to support those type of wires and those type of claims. Um, but it's definitely an interesting category with more people obviously gaming and being at home, um, then I think the tropic side is, is for sure interesting. And if
1: you think about the regulatory landscape worldwide, it's very complex, it's very inconsistent. As well, so you know. For example, if you're looking, I keep going back to my botanicals. I love a botanical. Um, you know, you've got different um, regulations in the US, EU, and China. They've all got different regulations. They're all classed as different substances. So it's yeah, it's it's a bit of a minefield. Mm. Yeah, it's, well, it's
3: um, also a gap though, because obviously it's quite difficult to control borders when you're online. Um, and I think that's yeah, why yeah, yeah exactly, the yeah, 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 Target you know, online platforms because it's an easy way to sort of reach people and be out of the purview of regulators and say, we're not there, we're not based there, we're over here. So it's um, it's it's useful as well as obviously difficult for people like me uh, to provide uh, legal certainty for a client. So, yeah. Yeah, no, a
0: lot for a company to take on. But also, I mean, again, you know, thinking about those terms, it's actually we're quite... Reliant then on having quite an informed consumer as well, because um, they're not sort of, they're not necessarily going to be straightforward statements that automatically mean something to everyone. Um, so we do have a question in the chat around uh, so uh, about getting food innovation right. Um, how uh, obviously you need to consider costs, implementation, um, and a consistent, reliable process. Uh, do you agree that to, um, I'm sorry, just flipped the wrong bit. Do you agree, uh, at edges of your seat, uh, that many innovative new products fail by not researching and adopting effective measurement, monitoring, and control? So I guess it's about, you know, how, how much you have to put in beforehand before you can successfully launch a product. Um,
3: I think it's a mixed bag.
0: Yeah,
3: um, yeah. So I think it depends on what your risk profile is as a business owner. Um, a lot of companies started off with, you know, a very high risk profile in terms of the products that they would launch in the market. You know, ingredients could be totally non-compliant, and they don't. In the end, regulatory is the last on the list. Um, you know, we we normally come into shots when people are in trouble. Um, so they tend to tend to think this is a great idea. Um, and this is what we're going to do with the product. And if the, if the go to regulatory or legal, then we're the dream killers. Um, so it's, you know, we, we might be lost on that, that list of people to speak to. Um, I don't think we're dream killers. I think we try and give people, you know, a, a risk benefit of saying, look, you could, you could do this, uh, rather than do that. But, um, yeah, that's the typical way it works. Um, so, yes, I think it's, it's ultimately down to sort of the individual company owner about what they want to do with that product. And obviously, the, the rewards can be high, obviously, for high risk. But if, if you get on the wrong side of a regulator with the ingredient or if it was an unsafe ingredient, which is the worst case, or it has an allergen in, then we've seen, obviously, the, that type of situation as well. So I think you need at least some knowledge um, for, from my side, from the regulatory side, um, and there's lots of, like, online resources, you know, where you can go to the FSA, you can look at Business Companion, um, FDF. You know, the, you, yourself, have got, you know, some great information about pictorial images and things like that, which we refer clients to. So there's there's lots of resources, a company with a relatively small budget to starting out could look at, but it's whether they want to spend the time on that or they're so caught up in the actual brand of the product and have seen an ingredient in the U.S. and thought, you know, that's where I want to put in my product. Um, first is obviously a more mature company, which is a completely different approach to launching a new product. And they've probably already got a very, you know, good structure in place. Um, you know, they might have a direct partnership already with trading standards. Um, so it could be a completely different situation from, you know, a unique startup to someone that's more mature as, mature as a company.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's starting at that concept stage and at that concept stage and so many we see it time and time again marketing teams want to put a claim on a product so they work with the R&D teams and as you say regulatory are the afterthought so it's kind of doing that scientific and that regulatory uh, screen at the point of concept so then you're decreasing your risk you're looking at your risk management and you're saying you know which, pro- which markets do I want to um, which markets do I want to launch it in okay what's permissible what's not permissible right up at the front so you know which concepts are going to work in the markets that, that you want to develop in and I think also it's it's all very well looking at the here and now that's absolutely fine but what about when that product is launched depending on how long that takes and what about the sort of mid to sort of mid to late term, I mean, we help loads of multinational companies to do this, to like do the horizon scanning, to look just beyond the regulations where they are now, but what might be happening in the future. So that's, that's a, another key area, I think. Yeah,
2: and I, I would just add, it's also about understanding your consumer and not trying to tick every box and, um, you know, understanding where you can make the compromises because, in pretty much every development you work on, that there will be some compromises that you have to make. And it's understanding what's, you know, if you do want to make claims, which ones resonate with your your target consumer? And you focus on those and then maybe have to to let others go and, and also not over message, because that just confuses people and they don't know what the product's for. Yeah, no,
0: absolutely. Um, and I guess, I mean, you've sort of probably answered that a little bit in that, you know, what makes a product uh, innovation. Um, but, and, and you mentioned kind of horizon scanning a bit more and looking ahead, Jenny. Um, but other, do you think there is something that is often overlooked when people start, uh, or when there's product innovation that, you know, really, if you could sit someone down at the beginning of the process, you would say, really, like, think about this now, look to this now, because actually it's often missed, and then, you know, that results with um, launches launches.
2: Well, certainly if it's a small or startup company, my advice is always look for your contract manufacturer as early as possible. Um, We have a lot of people come to us, they think that the development process is going to be the time consuming piece, and it it really isn't. It's making sure that you know where you're going to manufacture, what the process is, what you're going to pack into. You can then develop your product to be um, consistent with the the manufacturing um, that you have available to you. So don't leave that until the product's all ready to go because you may then find that the product you can't find anywhere that that can actually make the product yeah
0: words of wisdom jenny i would say increase that
1: connection between r d and regulatory as early as possible and Mm. also substantiating the claims as early as possible as well. So doing a science and a regulatory review to understand which claims you can use in which markets as well. I think doing that all as early on as you can, so that then you're taking into account the the consumer, the science and technology and the regulatory implications. I think sort of ticking all of those boxes or which boxes, as Carol said, which boxes are applicable for you to tick because you're not going to be able to tick all of them. Um, I I think that that would that would definitely help. Do you agree with
3: that, Mark? Yeah, I think I would go with on Jenny's side, where they don't need to spend a lot of cash initially because they probably don't have it. But I think an hours consultancy at the start of the process would be really useful. So you might have a startup in the UK, for example, and at some point they want to sell into Europe, but they're not going to go and pay someone to do multiple language translations, pre-market notification, and to assess, you know, what the maximum permitted levels, for example, of vitamins, minerals will be in all of those different markets, and what the risk is. So they might want to start off with something that's compliant in the UK, and as they build and become a bigger company, then they can look for more information how they might be able to flex that formulation for the markets. But at least if they comprehend what that road that roadmap might be in the future, it helps them then think about what we want to do with the product and how we might want to innovate and change. Um, rather than just think, look, we're just going to sell third-party, you know, third-country import to anywhere we want, and if we get caught, then that's just the way it is. Um, So I think it's useful to try and have sort of a grown-up conversation and say, look, this is the risks if you take that approach, but this is is the way that you could do it, Um, and these are the key markets. So understanding things like, obviously, what the market size is, what type of consumers they are in for their product in different member states, because you might not want to target everyone, different member states have got a different need for different types of product. So just being I haven't been able to have that discussion um, and trying to keep sort of a, a good network of people that can advise on different, different areas. So I'm not a food technologist, but now I know a good one that's on the screen. So, you know, might be able to advise me. And, you know, so there's, you need sort of a network of people that you can feed into and say, could you provide some guidance on this? And that's useful for a company to, to do rather than just think we can do everything ourselves in-house, um, yeah, so that, that's where I would, I would sit.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's right, that whole, um, I suppose it's making sure you're prepared in a way, isn't it, um, as early as possible, and kind of aware of the, all the different areas that you do need to look at. Um, I'm just going to remind uh, people listening in again that they can put uh, questions into the uh, question box. Um, So I guess maybe thinking about, as quite a broad question, but um, on regulation. And overarching, Mark, do you think that the regulations inhibit or do they, can they drive growth in certain categories? So if we think about, let's say, novel foods, for example. I'm very happy the entirety of
3: that uh, legislative framework. <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult, difficult one. I mean, we've got we've got lots of regulations covering everything, but ultimately, it's about enforcement, and that's the biggest issue. Is you know, I, I try. To, my, my view is what I call sort of legal realism. So when we advise a client there's no point in saying you can't say or oh, do all of these things because this is what the regulation says, because in, in effect, you're probably going to make them completely uncompetitive um, and not be able to sell the product. If you've got someone else that's working in the gray area of regulatory. So it's quite a difficult thing to advise a client on. Um, you know, you, you trying to give them sort of a realistic approach of what happens in, in the real world. So how many prosecutions have you seen if someone makes X type of claim? Um, what's what's going to happen if you make that type of claim? What if you use X ingredient we might think is novel, but it's accepted as not novel, but we, we haven't got any data to show that it's not novel, but we can see it's sold all over Europe for years. Um, so there's, there's that balance between sort of practical realism of, of legal interpretation and what happens on the market and again it depends on what the company is but because we work mostly on functional products um, especially on the sports nutrition side where products like to make more edgy claims um, which is different you know I'm not working with companies who want to sell a tin of soup or a loaf of bread Um, you know it's they've got lots of different ingredients in there um, lots of different actives and they're in there for a reason to deliver a physiological effect And so therefore, they want to be able to tell the customer about that physiological effect. And that can be quite difficult sometimes, Um, even, you know, especially if you work with companies that are not used to Europe. And they say, oh, we've got like this dossier of information and this has been published in the Lancet. Well, it doesn't matter if you've got 20 publications in the Lancet if it's not on the health claims register list. Um, So how do you communicate those benefits and how do you try and make that new um, client understand that by you know, working within the framework, you're not going to damage or destroy their brand um, because they've built it in a certain way in another market. And that just takes experience and time of doing that with other clients and being able to say, look, this has been the pathway of this company and this is how we can do it. So to go back to the original question, yes, it can be restrictive for sure. And I think we have got less ingredients that we, we probably could use because of interpretation, so if we look at novel foods, for example, different member states have a whole different view on what might be novel and what what might not be novel. Now, you can submit an article for submission, but most companies won't want to take that risk. So it's left up to the company to decide, is it novel or not? And that's when maybe Leatherhead or myself might provide some guidance on those issues to say, well, we've got some evidence to prove that this dose, this type of extract, this part of the plant is not novel. And then so for the company then to make a decision, depending on what the market is, because some markets, it might just be a slap on the wrist and say, we think you should remove, maybe, you know, worst case for them might be removed from shelf. Somewhere like Italy, um, you know, you might have, you know, the Ministry of Health or the, um, there's another body carrying with them anti-something now, but yeah, we might issue, you know, a million, a million in fines for selling that product. So it's really on a case-by-case basis about what guidance and how restrictive the regulations could be. But it could also obviously be beneficial. So if you want to invest in doing a novel food submission and you get that approval or a health claim submission and you get that approval, you can differentiate your product. You can build value into that product that other people won't have. Um, But it's being open and transparent about what the risks are. So how many 13.5 claims get rejected? Um, Where do we think there's a clear path for those type of claims? You know, I wouldn't be advising a client to submit a probiotic claim um you know but i might be advising them to make a claim on something else like an amino acid where we've got lots of data and we've got some information already on proteins and how EFSA might look at that And now obviously in the UK side of things with the health terms committee so there is options is benefits from having a regulatory framework but again this this fragmented view of interpretation for regulations makes it difficult i banged on a bit there sorry ladies
1: (laughs) That's okay. I was just thinking in terms of what we're seeing from global regulations is we're seeing more and more companies becoming involved in advocacy and it, and being able to sort of guide and influence some of some of the regulations coming through um, as well. So we're depending on the market. It's always very market and very product specific, but we're kind of seeing a little bit a little bit more of, of that kind of approach as well which will hopefully help innovation go moving forward.
0: And I'm thinking about um, the well, GB, I guess, specifically, um, I mean, and it may be too early to say, we said we've just seen the first meeting of the new um, claims committee, do you think it's going to get easier? Is there any kind of indication of direction of travel um, in terms of getting claims uh, approved within
3: Within GB, um, or is it a little bit too early days post exiting? Carl, do you want to
0: jump in? I had a chance. No, or... Let you go on Mark.
3: Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, there was some initial discussions about the the botanical side of things being loosened a little bit, um, but we've not seen anything yet. And like you said, the you know the the committee is relatively new and. You know they've just had the first meeting, so they're probably just looking at things like who's at the most digestives at the meeting, rather than anything substantial. Um, but it's eventually, you know, that group will be able to sort of. Well, th- their their remit, I would say, is probably not policy. I mean, it's it's probably ministerial issues, um, or you know, people above that body that that are not just doing the assessment but make policy changes and. And that's where that's going to come from, but that's up for industry to push that and say, look, we want access and clear access to what we need to do if we want to make a botanical claim. And the FSA, you know, always great at saying you should do this and this is the way you should do it. Well, present us a dossier then that shows the efficacy of a single botanical. So turmeric would be a great example. There's lots of data on turmeric. Um provide us a, a dossier that shows us some benefits for turmeric based on the published data. And we'll follow that framework as an industry because we've had exactly the same thing with CBD, where it's like, yeah, that's novel. Okay, then, well, you know, what guidance have we been given for that, and why is it changing all the time? Um, so I think going forward, one thing that does need to change is the need to, a clear path and clear advice to the industry, not just saying, have a look at what EFSA said, and then when you do when you submit the dossier, and they've got a sort of. They're already doing some divergent stuff already on, on the novel foods assessment. So I think industry really needs sort of clear guidance that's UK centric um, if, if they're going to diverge away from what EFSA's done historically. Um, and that, that's where I think they're currently at, which is just the start of that process. But it's a good time for industry to engage and try and actually influence influence what's going on there.
0: Yeah, I, think, I definitely agree. I think it's a, a great time to be engaging, as we're um, and you know the the companies, that trade bodies as well. Um, in terms of you know, we're obviously at the in early days in government thinking in terms of how it sets up its processes. Um, you know, what is I guess what is good regulation? What can be you know a, an appropriate regulatory framework? But actually. Um, hopefully isn't too burdensome for companies and, and is a, a very clearly set out and i think it is um yeah a really good time for to try and coalesce around some views as to actually this would be really helpful so it will you know it will do what government wants it to do and obviously protect the consumer um and and you know and the whole put uh, the consumer first which FSA is of course very focused on but it also works for industry and we are really at a moment in time i think um, just um maybe going back a little bit or but you know we, we've talked a bit around i think uh uh botanicals we've also talked around kind of novel foods um and i guess you know so obviously that's a uh, new <laughs> uh, clue is in the name um but what is it you think that consumers are looking for in in these like new ingredients um and at the same time do you think there are watch outs in kind of Adding in new things that are maybe unfamiliar, uh, I mean not you know, not maybe so much your turmerics, which you know, people obviously are aware of what that is uh, or, or you know have a, a view on it. but you know seeing something new on a label that can be a little bit disconcerting maybe uh, as well for consumers. So what is it do you think that, that drives that demand for new ingredients? but then also is there a kind of watch out in terms of trying to put too much into food and a backlash you might get?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is all down to, to labelling and, you know, this desire to have recognisable ingredients on the back of pack. So mm. relating it back to a source, if it's a naturally derived ingredient, I think sits very well with consumers, um, particularly, you know, plant sources and those sorts of things. I think con- consumers seem to be very suspicious of anything they de- deem to be a, a, a scientific name. Uh, you know, and we've seen the whole issue around anything that ends in all is, is you know, that's, that's not good. Um, if you have X at the beginning of it, you know, xylitol or um, I mean, uh, an ingredient like erythritol, it's really difficult for a consumer to even know how to pronounce. So I think it introducing new ingredients at the moment, it, it's so important that it's something that consumers can either understand when they pick it up and just look at it, or it links back to something they're familiar with. Um, and, you know, we're seeing with some, you know, some natural sources of vitamins and minerals coming through, say from seaweeds or from um, mushrooms or those sorts of ingredients. And I think that's really the way um, a lot of the, the new developments are going is, is really sort of drawing on those natural sources as much as possible.
1: I think from the consumer perspective there's that blurring boundary between supplements and food and beverage products because of what's being added into into the food and beverage products and i think there's that balance between the consumer readiness the kind of scientific evidence and the kind of the commercial pragmatism and it's no, and then you're adding in the international regulations into the mix as well so i think it's from a from a consumer perspective, I agree with Carol. It's, it's them understanding what's in the ingredient, what's in the product and why is, it, why is it in there? It's coming back to that transparency. So the consumers looking for that added value of those, those sort of the health benefits from products, but they want to understand why they're there.
0: Mm. It's quite an interesting uh, dichotomy on this, isn't it? Where people are sort of, well, I definitely want something that helps my cognition. And I kind of understand that bit. Uh, I don't want any ingredient, though, even though it may be helping my cognition, that I think sounds a bit sciencey. So I want it to sound like something that's grown, but I also want it to do all of these other things. You know, there's a kind of engagement on one side and then almost a a disengagement on the other, which I guess can be quite hard for um, companies to bridge, and and particularly in terms of what you can then put onto a, a label to sell it. Um, we are actually almost out of time, um, so if I could just—I'm uh, going to come to each of you um, and maybe just say if there was kind of one thing, and we have touched on on this throughout the conversation, really. But if there was a kind of one takeout for companies that you would want to give them when they're thinking about uh, where they might take their next product development, what would it be? Jenny, I'm going to go to you first.
1: In terms of oh. So in terms of the next product development, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I would very much consider your your market. So I think it really comes down to those three things that we started off with the -hmm. consumer. What is the consumer demand? What's the consumer looking for from your particular product, your particular brand? What is the science and technology? What's most relevant to the consumer need? And then also to understand from a regulatory perspective, not just about the here and now, but think about that kind of horizon scanning approach and thinking what's coming up in the future. So I think sort of all of those, those little bits. Brilliant.
0: Thank
3: you. Mark? I'm so glad that you went to Jenny first because I just wasn't ready at all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: I think probably to to think of yourself as a, as an expert brand and think about what is the key message of your product, what are you trying to communicate to the customer? So just because it might have magnesium in and you can make ten claims, doesn't mean you should make ten claims on pack, which is go goes back to a bit of what Carol said before, that people think because we can do it, why don't we just plaster it with claims? and then the consumer just is totally lost. Think about what you're trying to communicate. So the simplest way possible, them to recognize what that benefit might be even if because because as scientists or regulator or legal we have a totally different perception when we look at a product versus a normal consumer so you know if it, it's it's about being able to say what do you think about that mom or your daughter or a family member to actually get a gauge of what that means to someone so trying to keep the message very simple but targeted to you know your specific population and um, that's that's the thing. Just keep it simple.
0: Thanks.
2: Carol. It's even harder to go third because now all the good ideas have been talked <laughs> about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I totally agree with both Jenny and Mark on that. Um, so I would build on that and say also consider your sort of price of entry. So mentioned what's the, the nutritional profile of the product in terms of, you know, fat, sugar, salt, etc. cetera. Um, before you start building on those um, those maybe more functional ingredients and also, you know, taking into consideration the, your ingredient list, um, number of ingredients, don't just keep adding. Um, so, the, you know, and it's very easy to do when you're developing a product. If, you know, you're trying to sort of take it in one direction for taste or texture, you just add something else in and add something else and you end up with, you know, as Mark mentioned, 50 ingredients on the back of your pack and you need an enormous sack to, <laughs> to put all those ingredients. So those are two ideas I would consider.
0: Okay, no, I mean, that sounds great. And I, I guess then to me, to try and sum all of that up, um, although of course, um, you know, it's really important to think about um, the technical functions of ingredient and how that works in a product. And it's really important to look at your regulatory framework perhaps unsurprisingly, the kind of overall conclusion is, get your basics right and think about your consumer. Um, So so with that, uh, I would like to thank Jenny, Mark, and Carol for being with us today. It's been uh, a real pleasure uh, talking to you all, and I'm gonna hand back to Nikki.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you, you.
0: bye-bye.
1: And thank you
0: to Jenny,
2: Carol, and to Mark as well. Absolutely fascinating panel there. And I'm sure we're looking forward to uh, seeing what the fruits of that discussion yield
0: in terms of products at a later stage.